Amen. We may be seated. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me. You're wonderfully inerrant. You're infallible and you're all sufficient Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We have many thanks for Brady and Diana and Annalise this morning for our wonderful worship. This is such a wonderful time of year. We're looking forward to our candlelight service on Christmas Eve. I also want to remind everybody about our Lottie Moon offering that's still going on. HHBC is giving a 50% match on any dollar amount that's given. And as you recall, there's no administrative overhead taken out of Lottie Moon offerings by the SBC. 100% of our international, this goes 100% to our international missionaries on the field. So please be praying about what the Lord would have you give. You can still make your check out to HHBC. Just put Lottie Moon down there in the memo line. As well, uh, we received reports about Operation Christmas Child. We had a banner year. We broke all previous records, and we just received word that our boxes are headed to Malawi and South Africa, I believe. So those of you that were part of putting those boxes together and sending them, they are being received, and it is wonderful. And indeed, this is a wonderful time of year. Yet our hearts are saddened. We're starting to get some figures that we're hearing out of the devastating storms in Kentucky that not only scarred the land, but scarred the hearts of so many. We know that children were lost. In fact, the ages of the tornado, victim, tornado victims were as young as two months old up to the elderly. And our hearts break for those families. Christmas time will always be marked for those that suffered such a grievous loss. We saw pictures of churches in the area with roofs gone, turned to a rubble heap. Many saints in these areas are learning in ways that we never could what it means to be the church, that the building can be destroyed and the church remains. We could show up here next Sunday to a pile of bricks on top of each other in our parking lot and know that the HHBC family has not gone anywhere. We are living stones. If you are in Christ today, if you are a blood-bought believer, born again through repentance and faith, Scripture says that you are a living stone. As you come to Him, 1 Peter 2.4, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If I were a pastor in Mayfield, Kentucky this morning, I would feel compelled to preach from this text. Yet these events are so hard to process and to weep through. God gives us such comfort, not only from his word, but from those who have suffered tragedy before us, who have been ministered to by the Holy Spirit and by his saints as they've walked the paths of grief. Well, one such woman was Elizabeth Elliot. And of course, she was the wife of missionary Jim Elliot, who was famously killed by a tribe of people he was trying to reach with the gospel in 1956. Such a grievous loss for no other reason than to bring the gospel. Well, at first, to many, Jim's death seemed utterly senseless. Like so many tragedies, the events can also often seem random and even meaningless. But that's not true. The same Elizabeth Elliot who suffered with all of these emotions, she went on to encourage millions through her writing and through her speaking. She said, quote, because I believe in a sovereign God, because I believe in a God who loves me, I believe that the things that happen in my life mean something. Close quote. Simple words. And she's right. Not because she believes it, but that's what scripture says. The psalmist declares that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Not just sometimes. He didn't look away and something slipped by. Though it sure does feel like that sometimes. His eyes are on you. His eyes are on every hurting saint. He loves his children. While our paths we walk as believers in a fallen world, they often bring with it pain and great heartache. When we know that the circumstance, that the trial is administered from the hand of someone who loves us very much. 
and who is working all things for our eternal good. There's great strength in that knowledge. There's comfort there. There's wine for the day's trials and travails. The presence of pain, saints, is not the gauge that we live by for believers. That's not the gauge. For Christians, the presence of pain is not the standard of whether something is good or bad. If a limb is severed by an accident, or if someone stabs you with a knife, it would bring great pain. But a surgeon's scalpel can do the same thing and bring about the same pain. The difference is in the one who's administering that pain. If we feel pain as Christians, ultimately it is the scalpel of the master. It hurts, and it may even remove a limb, just like an accident. But oh, what a difference when it is our heavenly father who is wielding the blade for our good. It's not easy. It will hurt, but he is good. He's good. He is fashioning our pain and our joy into an eternal weight of glory. Some say that these are just platitudes or worse yet, that these are just a crutch for us weak minded Christians. You bet they are. You bet they are. Since when did a crutch become a bad thing? Since when was it wrong to rely on something to hold you up? Step one in our salvation and a process that continues was realizing what helpless, needy and dependent creatures we are. I don't stand on my own. I need a crutch. You had better believe I need a crutch. I cannot walk this Christian life on my own. We are gloriously dependent creatures. If you are Mr. or Mrs. Independent, walking on your own, hard and tough, you have already fallen or a fall is imminent. It's, all, it's imminent because it's the prideful who are injured but say they need no help. Take the crutch, the wonderful, glorious crutch of the gospel. Lean on it. Cling to it as the dependent and broken vessels that we all are. Our entire Christian walk is one of great need. And pain shows us that need. Though it be the pain of a knife, it is the master's scalpel. And this doesn't get easier as you grow in the Lord. No, the, the closer that we get to the Lord, the more that we grow in Christ, the greater the light becomes and the brighter it becomes, the more we can see our need. And the stains on our garment are now so much more visible. And the more we see our need and our stains from that ever brightening light, the greater our dependency becomes. The more we need that crutch, the more senior the saint the more they are clinging to that glorious crutch. To the mocking of the world, we cling to it. Where else would we go, Lord? For only you have the words of eternal life. Let us be reminded, beloved, pain is not the same for the Christian. Grief, loss, trials may feel like a knife to the chest, but if you're in Christ, or if God is drawing you unto himself, that knife is the scalpel of the master. Both wield a blade, both bring pain, but oh, what a difference for the Christian. So please be praying for these families and their loss. Amen? Amen. Well, as we come upon the end of the year, I've been informed by my wife and by church leadership that I am going on vacation after Christmas, whether I want to or not. One of the first things that my mentors in ministry taught me <clears throat> is not to neglect time to refresh the spirit. Pastors often feel duty-driven to keep pressing on, but ultimately a congregation is much better off with a pastor who is forced to take a vacation. So rest assured that my ever-waking thoughts will be with you all, I will be missing you all, and I will be praying for you all while I am gone. Well, in 2021, the Lord has innumerably blessed Harrison Hills. Unbelievable. We have tripled in size over this last year, and as the church in the book of Acts, the Lord continues to add to our number as he sees fit. The growth of the word is the growth of the church. And as we come upon the end of the year, we thought about how we may best serve our flock with so many new faces, many having joined our series in Mark midstream. Though, yes, I do know we actually have new members who went back and they listened to the entire series from the beginning. Well, praise the Lord. Always great to have overachievers in the crowd. 
always keeps us on our toes. But for the rest of us mere mortals, I know it can be helpful to reflect on where we have come to in Mark up to this point. To take a little journey down memory lane of 2021, some of the highlights of the disciples' journey to this point. A look at how the disciples found themselves here a year later. For those of us who have, who have been with us from the beginning, our time in the Gospel of Mark is not too far off the actual amount of time that's elapsing in the life of the disciples. You know, Jesus' active ministry on earth was only about three years, three years long. And we're about nine months to a year from Calvary at this point in the Gospel. And we are about nine months to a year from finishing our series. So we are quite literally in the sandals of the disciples, even in our timeline. But there have been so many wonderful things that have happened, so many events that have shaped our hearts in Mark's gospel over our time there. So I wanted to share some of these moments with you as we wrap up another blessed year. By the time January of this year had rolled around, we had already completed Mark chapter 1 in 2020, and we launched the new year in Mark 2. So we've managed to cover about six and a half chapters of Mark in one year, almost exactly halfway through the gospel. And I can't even begin to tell you how much we weren't able to cover. When you're writing sermons and when you're swimming in the depths of God's word, it's not figuring out what to put on the plate to serve your people that's difficult. It's figuring out what to leave off the plate because the riches of God's word are truly inexhaustible. We began this year in Mark 2. While I cannot review all the way up to where we are now, you'll thank me later for that, that would be putting an ocean in a teacup, getting ready to reflect on up to about midpoint of chapter 4. That should include many who are newer to HHBC this year. But before we start, let us pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to this point. Lord, having brought us halfway through the gospel of Mark, Lord, we're different than when we started. We're not the same people. We thank you for allowing us to walk in the sandals of the disciples. We thank you for being able to smell the air of the Sea of Galilee and to feel the dust and the grass. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this time of reflection over what we've learned so far. We ask that things that you have taught us would be stirred up and we would be brought to remembrance of these things. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, if you'd like to follow along this morning, we're going to be really drinking from a fire hose. For that, I apologize in advance. And we're going to begin where we began this year with chapter two. And here was a story that had stuck with me, a two-part series titled Our Greatest Need. Our Greatest Need, A Paralytic Forgiven. I'll read the story quickly through. You can feel free to turn to Mark chapter 2 if you want to follow along. We haven't put it up on the board today because that's just going to be a lot for you to take in. So if you want to follow personally along in your word, that would be just great. So verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, as we fly overhead at 35,000 feet. This, this series was titled, Our Greatest Need, a Paralytic Forgiven. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet in which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive saints but God, sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way in themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? What's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? but so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, I get a bit teary-eyed rereading this scene. 
This young man had been healed of his physical ailments. He was able to walk and to run again. His physical ailment had been cured. He had been healed. But it became very clear that the young man, while he had been healed, he had not been restored. His greatest need had not been met. The root of his need was yet to be met. This man needed his sins forgiven. How encouraging it was to see that we serve a Lord that not only heals at his good pleasure and in accordance with his will, but he has the power on earth to forgive sins. If you have breath in your lungs, your greatest need is to be set free from the law of sin and death, to have your sins forgiven. Regardless of what is happening in our lives, as pressing as it is and as it feels, the health report, as bad as it can be, our most pressing need is forgiveness through Christ. This man's physical healing was but a footnote to the real miracle. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the real miracle. Yes, you're physically disabled, but you're spiritually disabled. You're spiritually dead. Your paralysis is not your problem. You need to be forgiven. And Jesus looks at the man and he goes right for the heart, doesn't he? He makes a beeline to man's greatest need. I'm reminded in these texts how vital our eternal vision is. How terribly we need to take off our temporal glasses. Break my body, but give me Jesus. Let my sins be forgiven. Heal me, don't heal me. If I'm in Christ, I will walk again in eternity. This man's greatest need was filled. At this point, Jesus had also already called a few of his disciples to himself. You remember Peter, Andrew, James, and John in chapter 1. But one of the most remarkable callings was Levi, the tax collector. You would better know Levi probably as Matthew. This message was titled, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, Dining with the Dregs, in verse 13 through 17. Listen to this incredible scene. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, while we had a hint of the Pharisees up to this point, here we're really beginning to address in our series the crushing weight of legalism. And yet that legalism in this text is about to run headlong into a forgiven tax collector. Someone called of God, set free in Christ, Matthew. In this scene at Matthew's house here, this was a celebration. You know, it's often said that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Matthew knows what it was that he was saved from. So many parallels to Zacchaeus here, if you know that story. And many of you know that I used to preach in the prisons in Kentucky. And I miss that very much, but one of the things I miss most are the inmates there. You've never seen such passion and zeal than someone who has sank as low as they can go. And Jesus reaches down and he pulls them out of the ash. He redeems their life from the pit. They know from where they came. They know who they used to be. And they can see the miracle that they are now. This makes them very passionate people. And here Matthew wants the whole world to know what happened to him. Because this is not just a meal at his home. That's a different Greek word to say that they were just sharing a meal. No, it says that they were reclining at the table. That tells us this was a party. This was a party in Jesus' honor. And I love in verse 15 where it talks about who was present at Matthew's party. One commentator writes, quote, this group would have included known criminals, thieves, thugs, enforcers, and prostitutes, all part of the outcast network of which Matthew himself had been a part. 
To the self-righteous leaders, they were the dregs of society. To Jesus, they were the mission field. They were sinners and they knew it. And that is the very kind of person that Jesus has come to seek and to save. Unlike the Pharisees in this scene who chided Jesus for dining with the dregs, for dining with sinners, Jesus shows us what newness of life does to us. It doesn't drive us from sinners. It drives us to them. Jesus is not dining with them to endorse their lifestyle or their activities. He came to rescue sinners. Have you ever tried rescuing someone you've never met? Have you ever tried throwing a lifeline to someone that you can't be seen talking to? It's impossible. It's impossible. Ministry is messy. People's lives are messy. And we are called to get our hands dirty. Matthew has been saved from a life of shame. And Jesus is more than happy to upset the religious elite as he rejoices with them. Well, now at this midway point through Mark 2, we're really starting to see the Pharisees become a dominant force. And Jesus is laying out some concepts that are hard to discern. He's very much in a cryptic mode at this point. He's revealing and he's concealing. Very common theme right now. We title this next message, Irreconcilable Gospel. Works, wear, and wine. It's an incredible teaching from Jesus beginning at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, while this reads very beautifully, it's actually a stinging rebuke. Right? Jesus is telling the Pharisees here that their entire understanding of everything around them, what they're seeing, what they're practicing, who it is they're talking to right now is absolutely covered in darkness. It's the polar opposite of correct. And what's so interesting here is that, you know, the Old Testament never refers to the coming Messiah as the bridegroom. It never uses that language, but it does refer to Israel as the bride of the Lord making God the bridegroom. So all of this bridegroom talk that Jesus is giving here is a massive claim of deity. I am the bridegroom, and I've come for my bride. And when the bridegroom shows up for the celebration, that's no time to fast. Weddings are a time of new beginnings, of new relationships being forged and consummated. We who were separated from God by our sin will be brought into relationship with him by this very wedding. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you are fasting, you do not recognize that the bridegroom has come. If you're not, if you have no part of the party, you have no part of the person. Jesus is telling them that we have irreconcilable gospels between me and the Pharisees. There was the religious system of self-righteousness and of works. This old, filthy, stained stench of a garment is not worthy. It's not worthy to have the rich and new bright patch of the gospel sewed onto it. Not only is it not worthy of this new patch, it would never work. It would never work. They're diametrically opposed. One is of grace. Yours is of works. One is stained with the stench of self-righteousness. My gospel, though, gives you an alien righteousness. My gospel gives you one that's a righteousness that's not your own, one that you couldn't earn in a thousand lifetimes of works. We learn that the gospel is not a fixer-upper. It's not a fixer-upper. The message of the cross does not arrive in a person's life to patch it up. When Jesus Christ transforms a life, he throws the old garment into the fire. 
with all of its sin-stained guilt, it is burned up in the fire of his perfection, you're given a brand new garment, brand new. It's not there anymore. The sin stains are not there anymore. What an encouragement that scene was. As we close chapter two, and we moved into chapter three. We began a two part series titled Saving the Sabbath, Saving the Sabbath. And we did a deep dive into what the Sabbath meant for these people, how every week was a massive production in Israel. Some of the silliest rules you've ever heard of. You know, Alfred Edersheim, we detailed some of his restrictions that he wrote about as written in both the Talmud and in the Mishnah. And they're boggling. Listen to this. He writes, anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. Thus, on a Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens, tailors their needles or students their books. To do so might tempt them to work on the Sabbath. For that matter, carrying anything heavier than a dried fig was forbidden. And if the object in question had been picked up in a public place, it could only be set down in a private place. If the object were tossed into the air, it had to be caught with the same hand. To catch it with the other hand would constitute work and therefore be a violation of the Sabbath. No insects could be killed. No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. Nothing could be bought or sold. No bathing was allowed. My kids might like that. Since water might spill onto the floor and accidentally wash it. No furniture could be moved inside the house. Listen to this, saints. Since it might create ruts in the dirt floor and thereby constitute plowing. An egg could not be boiled, even if all one did was place it in the hot desert sand. A radish could not be left in salt because it would become a pickle and pickling constituted work. Sick people were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. Any medical treatment that improved their condition was considered work and therefore prohibited. It was not even permissible for women to look in a mirror since they might be tempted to pull out those gray hairs they spotted. Nor were they allowed to wear jewelry since jewelry weighs more than what? A dried fig. The list goes on. And the Pharisees, they relished this. They really did. Every Sabbath was their time in the sun to be in control. And they loved the recognition. They loved the power. The crowds splitting in the marketplace to honor them and to give them the best seats. Well, let's read this text quickly. We're in chapter 2, verse 23 through 28, for those that are following along. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along, picking the heads of grain. Uh-oh. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Oh, listen to this. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But from this text, we saw that the Pharisees were actually haunting Jesus' steps. They were following through him through the field, which shows their hypocrisy because you weren't allowed to do that. They were breaking their own rules. And what did it say in verse 24? Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That betrays their hearts, doesn't it? Lawful according to whom? According to them. Because we are Lord of the Sabbath. Our day, our rules. Because it sure isn't in Scripture. None of these rules and regulations are in Scripture. This is their own religion. Conceived, born, and bred in the hearts of men, not from the mouth of God. And Jesus goes even further. He makes a new pronouncement of himself. He even gives himself a new title up to this point. Not seen in Scripture up to this point. Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. This is part of the progressive revelation that Jesus is giving to his disciples about who he is. Jesus is not acting as a free agent that came to abolish the Sabbath, to shake up the system, to be a rebel, as he's so often depicted. He was not a radical. He was Lord. He was sovereign. He was Lord over the Sabbath. He didn't come to abolish it. He was Lord of it. 
And that's exactly what he's saying here. This Sabbath you claim to be an absolute authority of, I'm Lord over it all. If it is God himself who established the Sabbath, who wrote the fourth commandment, and you say that you are Lord of the Sabbath, which Jesus did, who are you saying that you are? Jesus was saving the Sabbath. He was saving it from what it had been turned into, from what it had become. And he was systematically fanning the flames against a religious elite that would eventually call for his death. And all of these run-ins with them that we see in Mark are all bricks that are leading on the road to Calvary. And we learned at the close of Mark's second chapter that this race that we're running, saints, is a race of grace. It is not one of works and of rules. We obey God's law because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's why we do it. That's why we obey, because we love him. Keeping rules for the sake of keeping rules does not march you down the path of becoming more like Jesus. Legalism pulls you away from him. As always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Why do we do what we do? What is the heart? As we launched into chapter three, this was part two of saving the Sabbath. And we saw a great anger brewing in the hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus had come and he had stolen their identity, lock, stock and barrel, saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And now we see Jesus entering into the synagogue, don't we? And a man with a withered hand is there. Remember that? And some even think that he was planted there to tempt Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. Imagine that kind of mindset. Listen to this story, beginning at chapter, th chapter 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? to save a life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's amazing. In their hearts, they already wanted to kill him. We started to see what a hard heart looks like. Saints, the greatest hindrance to experiencing divine love, divine forgiveness, and restoration, it is not opposition, and it is not persecution. The greatest roadblock to the bosom of Christ is a hardness of heart. Jesus performs a creative miracle for all to see. Yet, oh, look at the power of the hardened heart. I know many with lost friends and relatives, they believe that if they relay enough information or if they have the, the best apologetic or if God would do something miraculous in their lives, bring about a tragedy in their life, that will surely bring them around. No, if as a heart is of stone, we see here that Jesus Christ himself could stand in front of them, perform a creative miracle, and they would not believe. Such is our fallen depravity. That's what makes salvation such a miracle. Jesus removed our heart of stone that was no better than these Pharisees here. And he gives us this heart of flesh. This series, Saving the Sabbath, was, it was spring cleaning for legalism. Shake out the drapes and wipe off the mantles. Get it out of here. We saw what legalism does to the mind. How it calluses the heart. How it drains the life. How it brings with it death. Death of joy, death of spirit, and ultimately separation from Christ, resulting in everlasting death. Saints, legalism is a cheap substitute for an obedience that's fueled by love. I'll say that again. Legalism is a cheap substitute for an obedience that is fueled by love. Legalism is a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. It's fake. For every attribute that we are and that we have, that we walk in as Christians, Satan is a counterfeit for it. Every one of them. He has a counterfeit. So we see now in verse 7, verse 7, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea 
and that a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. Oh, they're coming from everywhere. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, we titled this message, Into the Open Air, A Wonderful Tragedy. The crowds thronged to Jesus, didn't they? From everywhere. Gentiles, half Gentiles, everywhere. But they were there for the gift, not the gift giver. They saw their greatest need as being their physical ailment, not as needing a new heart. And we saw in this message how closely we can get to Christ, that we can reach out and we can grab his garment. We can get right up to him and miss him entirely. How easy it is to come for the wrong reasons to love the gift over the gift giver. And as we moved on, we got a bit of literary whiplash as we kind of stepped into Jesus going from the throngs here, of tens of thousands of people from all the areas to immediately retreating from there, taking a very select few, a very important few with him. This was a message we titled, it was a favorite of mine called Chosen and Called the Twelve. And here Jesus officially picks his twelve. Listen to this list at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Adam and Philip, uh, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, here we see Jesus summoning those whom he desired. And we ask the question, why these twelve? Why these 12? Short answer, we have no idea. I have no idea. Why did God choose Abel and not Cain? Why did God choose Israel and not Egypt? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did he choose Peter and not Judas? Because the psalmist tells us that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's what it means to be God. Not in a haphazard or a capricious way. Not in in a... act of cosmic randomness. In fact, it's just the opposite. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It strips them of their pride in attributing their salvation to themselves and their apparent super ability to see the truth when others could not. But it's all of God. God chose the twelve. They are out mending their nets. They were collecting taxes. They were just doing life. And Jesus invaded their world and he called them out. And we love seeing in verse 17 where Jesus is giving out nicknames here. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Bonerges, meaning sons of thunder. Well, we joked in our series that this sounds pretty cool, right? Like a men's Bible study name, sons of thunder. Yeah, not at all, not at all. The Arabic word for thunder here is rojez, meaning agitation and anger. It says that Jesus gave them this name, sons of anger, sons of agitation. It's not a compliment. In a great bout of irony, Peter's nickname, which was the rock, right? Jesus was showing Peter what he wanted to become. But for James and John, he nicknamed them on what they needed to leave behind. What a comfort, what a comfort to have been chosen in Christ. If it were up to us, we would just mess it up. We would just mess it up. All glory to God. From there, we launched into our three-part series. This was a church favorite titled The Great Trilemma. The Great Trilemma, Delusional, Demonic, or Divine. 
Well, famed author C.S. Lewis, of course, he coined this phrase, the great trilemma. After being converted as a younger man, he was immediately confronted by a logical fallacy of sorts that flew in the face of a prevailing worldview concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Primarily that Jesus was a great teacher. He was one to be revered and admired. Not God, but along with Buddha and Confucius, he had many wise things to say. Love your neighbor, right? Who could argue with that? Who could argue with that? But this causes a serious problem if one reads the scriptures. Jesus was a man who proclaimed in every way imaginable to be God. He assigned divinity to himself all the way up to and including saying, I am, causing the high priest to rent and to tear their robes. There's no gray area in the New Testament on Jesus' claim of divinity. Thus, if Jesus was not divine, he must, by pure logic, either be delusional or demonic. Or to coin Josh McDowell's popularized phrase, Jesus must be a liar or a lunatic if he was not Lord. We are left with no other option, hence the trilemma for the unbelieving heart. They have a real problem on their hands because Jesus being an admirable, admirable teacher or a wise sage, it's not an option. It's not an option. We either must dismiss him as crazy as we would anyone else who's standing on the corner claiming to be God, or we must label him a con man and a liar. Or as C.S. Lewis says, we must fall down on his feet as Lord and God. And look at what was known as the unpardonable sin in that series as well. How many Christians you'll talk to over the years that are genuinely concerned that they've committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe earlier in their life when they didn't know the Lord. I pray that we remove that burden of concern in that series as we, we learn very simply that if you are worried about having committed the unpardonable sin, you could not have committed the unpardonable sin. It's just that simple. Listen to this incredible scene. Jesus' own family, thinking he's delusional. The scribes saying he's demonic. And we are left with the only logical conclusion that he's divine. Listen to this story, starting at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. He's a lunatic. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He's demonic, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to him in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him saying, your brother and your mothers, they're outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a remarkable scene at the end there with Jesus' earthly family. Right? Jesus was not being short or rude or insulting to his family. In fact, it's Jesus' love that he does have for his blood family that provides such brilliant magnification of what Jesus is actually saying here. Of course Jesus loved his dear mother Mary. She held him and nurtured him, stroked his head as a baby. Of course he loved his brothers, right? They would have played together on the dirt floors together. They would have played in the fields together. And Jesus knew how to express his love for his family perfectly, in complete perfection. And then he says in this text, that's nothing. That's nothing. As special and as wonderful as they are and as they were to me, it is nothing compared to those who are joined to me in salvation. This is a remarkable statement. 
floating on the surface of this text was one of the greatest statements of comfort and security for the believer in all of Scripture. It's right there. We could go on and on. I'll close with one more move into chapter 4. This was one of the most impactful series for my own heart. It was titled, A Tale of Four Soils. Such a unique place in Mark. Well, you'll remember that Mark's gospel is considered a gospel of action, isn't it? Go, go, go. The word immediately, immediately. It's the most common word, right? So there's very little in the way of actual teaching in the gospel of Mark. That's what makes this text so very special. We've gone from warp speed, from scene to scene to scene, fast-paced to an immediate slowdown. Jesus teaches a parable. He slows down and he says, listen, you need to get this. Watch our final scene here, a rare scene of teaching in Mark, beginning at chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Jesus is giving this teaching in response to the questions that are in the hearts of the disciples. How is it, Jesus, that we are here, that we've seen the miracles with our own eyes, and the crowds by the tens of thousands have seen these same miracles with their own eyes? The scribes and the teachers proclaim that no man spoke like you ever. The demons are running in terror. He's proclaimed divinity and he's backed it up with authentication. He's performed all of the messianic miracles up to this point that only Christ can perform. So the question we're having, Jesus, is what are all these people's problem? What's their problem? You are ticking every box right in front of their eyes in accordance with their own teaching. And they don't hail you as Messiah. In fact, they hate you for it. I've even been hearing murmurings that they want to kill you for it. We don't understand. Why don't our countrymen see? Why can't my children see? Why can they not see what is right before their eyes? You're leaving them speechless by the thousands, Jesus. And yet there is no revival. There's no coronation ceremony being planned in Jerusalem. Nothing. Nothing. In fact, we see that by the end of Jesus' ministry, at the very end, how large was Jesus' actual true following? About 500 around Galilee, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, and about 120 in Jerusalem, Acts 1, 15. Only 620 people in a world that could have gone to the edge of the seashore and listened to God himself speak, that could have seen a leper healed, a blind man given sight, miracle upon miracles, only 620 at the end of that. How is that possible? The last Super Bowl had 22,000. Jesus Christ himself had 620 that are documented when he left this earth in a cultural and a religious climate that was dedicated to looking for him. And this caused many consternation. I would think that the stadium would fill with true fans, but it doesn't. Thus we see the very question 
from the heart of the man in Luke 13. Do you remember that? He's asking Jesus, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Can you hear that question? Can you hear the thrust behind that question? The seed is being scattered everywhere. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Yes, the crowd throngs when there's a show to be seen or a miracle to be had, but now it's just us. There's 12 of us standing here. Why? Everyone who is a believer in here today can relate to this man, can't you? Everyone who has been born again, who's been raised to new life, who has seen a new heart and a new creation made inside of them, you have a joy that's never been known to you before. Christ is precious to you above all else. You've encountered a gospel that has not been added to your life. It has taken over your life. It's all-consuming, all-encompassing, and everyone around me, why can no one else see this? Why does nobody desire my Savior? This needs to be explained. And so Jesus does in the parable of the four soils. Jesus is going to explain why people respond to the gospel the way that they do. Why so few will enter in the narrow way. Saints, it goes on. The parable of the mustard seed, Jesus calming the storm, the healing of the demoniac of the gathering, Jairus and his daughter, the woman and the issue of blood, the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus feeding both the 25,000 and the 16,000. Oh, Jesus walking on the water, the Syrophoenician woman. What a year it has been. Of course, all these messages, they're available on sermon audio. We encourage you to go back and soak them in. The saints, God's word is rich. It is inexhaustible. And while it feels like we go very deep here at HHBC, indeed we do, but how amazing that we don't even get through the first layer. We don't even get through the first layer. It is going to take eternity to wrap your minds around the book that's in your lap. This is just the warm obsession. That's all this is. Well, I'm looking forward to this coming Christmas Eve candlelight service. I pray that you all can make it. In an evening that celebrates the coming of Jesus, that means it's a celebration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a special time in closing, on our last communion Sunday, we had many congregants who were out with bouts of sickness, so we wanted to partake one more time for this year so that no one missed out. So as we begin preparing our hearts for that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, reflecting on what we have covered so far this year, turns up sediment that has been that has settled to the bottom of our heart. And Lord, that is a blessing as the Holy Spirit reminds us of things that you were teaching us as we were going through this past year. We're reminded as we look back and we look at the trajectory of our life, are we more like your son right now than we were this time last year? And Lord, I pray that we were. I pray that we are. And Lord, as we look forward to 2022, as we complete the gospel of Mark by your grace, Lord, we ask that we not be the same. We ask that we be inextricably and unalterably changed to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.